Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrismovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, I bought a bunch of hats. Ooh, that's exciting. What kind of hats? Well, glad you asked, Cameron. The one I'm wearing today mm-hmm. is a challenge hat. And by that, I mean a hat that I challenged somebody else to sure. get with me. I don't know if they have. It says, <laughs> women want me, fish fear me. The scientist who created me is terrified of what he has done. His hubris, his desire to play God, has created a living being which he fears will rebel against him. <laughs> I love that. The text is very small. <laughs> I would bet. That's a, that's a great hat, though. That's a great one. I'm loving it. All right. Well, I don't know who challenged to get it with you, but I hope that they have, in fact, gotten it. The, the problem of being tall and wearing hats is that, like, hmm. like, I'm not, like, that tall, but I'd say I'm, like, taller than... I'm, I'm tall enough that when I'm wearing a hat, it's very difficult for people to see what funny things I have written on it. You're taller than average, so right. you can just, so, yeah, about 50% of the population is going to be looking looking up yeah, at I you. Yeah, I find myself, like, stooping, like, seeing if I can bait someone into reading my hat, like, hey, it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think people will do it. I've been, I, I, whenever I wear my own hats with, with the words written on them, I, I have people often ask me just to, like, look down so they can read what's on my hat, so I, I, I believe in you. Wow, I, I actually gonna... think I would hate that. It would take so long for someone to read this hat. <laughs> <laughs> good thing i don't go out and you really planted the seeds of your own destruction <laughs> my hubris my desire to play god <laughs> uh well who are you uh i'm i who i who am i that's a great question that's a really existential one i'm not certain i'm fully prepared to answer it but i can give you a superficial one okay. which is that my name insofar it is as, as it has been given to me by my parents mm-hmm. and by my lineage mm-hmm. uh, is cameron lalana uh, and this week and this actually happened a little while ago but i was texting matt about it and it made me laugh looking back on it I was reading for Stalingrad in a bar. I just went after work like at 6 p.m. expecting it to be pretty quiet there. It's just a place to kick back and get some reading done. And people just kept talking to me. That apparently was not a good decision. And first of all, they kept asking me, what is this book about? And I said, oh, and, you know, knowing that not a lot of people are familiar with the Soviet side of World War II. And I said, oh, it's about World War II from the perspective of the Soviets. And people would nod along and say, oh, yeah, definitely. What's World War II? Mm. (laughs) And then I was like, okay, it's when Nazi Germany invaded the rest of Europe. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Nazis. Yeah, they were like checking for papers and shit, right? And then Mm. I was like, yes, I mean, that's not like the main thing that they're known for. But yeah, that is something they did do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not really unique to the Nazis in a meaningful way, but... (laughs) no. (laughs) And also, at a certain point in the night, I was sitting next to this guy... We're both drinking whiskey. Uh, this is this is relevant to the story, and he's telling me about you know learning to draw because he was did he did about ten years in prison. And the guy across the bar starts comparing his prison sentence, and the other guys join in. And at a certain point, I begin to realize I'm the only dude in here who hasn't done about a diamond prison, um, which is when you realize it was all <laughs> I think set this, up. Yeah, <laughs> I think I was, te- I was texting you at this point, and you said this is the most Cameron thing imaginable. It really or something was along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> So the guy next, he was also drinking whiskey and it was Jameson. It's pretty, which is pretty, a pretty smooth whiskey as whiskeys go. But he's like really struggling with it. And he's like, he needed a, a Coke. And even then he was like really going back and forth. It's like, man, this is rough. And maybe it's just because of my consummate alcoholism. But again, we were both drinking Jameson. It's very smooth. But I didn't want to give this man who, and I don't know what he did a decade in prison for, but I did not want to give him the impression I was belittling him. So I had to fake struggling with my whiskey along with him. What a champ. Are you sponsored by um, Jameson? Anyway. How would you describe it again? <laughs> 
very what <laughs> very smooth really you know the the drink of choice you'd want if you are at a bar and you're realizing that maybe you aren't quite the crowd this bar usually is for it calms you down it makes you feel like you are you are a part of it by the end of the night everyone was just like i was i was there for like nine or ten people were like every time someone came to buy drinks at the bar they'd be like hey man you want a drink too They're all super friendly people but yeah definitely the introduction was a little intimidating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well Anyway, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind with our week, with our week. We get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are continuing the long, long trek that is making our way through Stalingrad. I think this is part six, so that's pretty good. It is indeed. All right. I titled my episode correctly. It's pretty good. (laughs) That's fun. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Paradoxically, it feels like we do a lot. This is episode is this series is a lot more and a lot less work than other series because there's so much more background to reading and extra stuff to be done. But also, you know, we're just at this point, we're just like stumbling in, pulling up the script, and we're like, all right, let's go. Yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. Um, well, speaking of stumbling in, Matt, I got to ask you before we get into the reading, what are you drinking today? Well, speaking of being sponsored, I am sponsored this week by water. That's right. This episode <laughs> is brought to you by me. Reminding you to drink water like me. You might be thinking, Matt, you sound disgusting. What are the mouth noises that I'm hearing through your microphone? That is the lingering effects of COVID that I got this week. So that was fun. Yeah, my life has been a lot of uh, light and shadow recently as I've been (laughs) sleeping in this dream state. Uh, Reading Stalingrad, sleeping more. Sure. That's about it. So I'm drinking water this, this evening. That's entirely fair. What about you? I serendipitously am also drinking water because oh God. I am I'm <laughs> I'm moving this week, so I'm I'm going to be moving more or less in the work week. So I've got to get taking this weekend time to get as much packed up as I can, so I can get to my new apartment. So I need to keep working after this. So it looks like today is a sober soldier Nietzsche for both of oh, us. That's that's just wonderful. Okay. Now we're going to be continuing on with our episode six of this series, which is going to be in part two, chapters 22 through chapter 40. This is a rough one. That's, a, that, that's all I have to say about what's going to happen here. Yeah, it was, wasn't the best. I was reading before bed last night and my girlfriend was like, oh, how's it going? Because that's how everyone sounds to me with my, my stuffed up COVID ears. And <laughs> I was like, well, it wasn't going great. And then it got a lot worse that i'm pretty sure a bunch of kids died so (laughs) yeah orphans if that makes it better it doesn't it doesn't no i think i might actually make it i guess it's not better or worse it's you can't really i'm not going to get into the mathematics of which children it's saddest it's saddest when they die but um okay so we join in chapter 22 an interesting perspective which we have not seen since the beginning of the book uh we rejoin the nazi military perspective events uh specifically with a german general uh weller weller is getting ready for the invasion of stalingrad he's hearing that the uh it's been dictated that stalingrad must fall and he's kind of thinking upon the despair he imagines the russians uh the russian people the soviet people as a whole must be feeling And the narrator writes, had the general been a psychologist and a philosopher, he might have suspected that what for him was a source of joy and excitement inevitably gave rise to very different, dangerously powerful feelings in the heart of the Russians. But he was not a philosopher, he was a general. I'm bringing that up because this 
first half of the what we're going to be reading is very heavily, I will say, philosophical. It is the narrator telling you about what German high command was like at this point in the war and philosophizing about what that meant in a more ideological sense. So from Weller, we continue on to General Paulus, who's the commander of the German 6th Army, uh, who's thinking about the captures, uh, the soon-to-be capture of Stalingrad, who is about to be joined by General Richthofen. Richthofen is the commander for the Air Force, German Air Force. And just as a side note here, I want to bring in this line. It seemed that Richthofen had much in common with the ever-fortunate Rommel, that lucky dog whose popularity was inversely proportional to his knowledge, his capacity for thought, and his understanding of military culture. Dunked you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> uh that's it that was just good to read I, i'm glad that if you've ever hung around online spaces that study world or two there's a weird amount of worship for general rommel from people who are like no i don't i don't like the nazis i just admire their military capabilities and there's a weird amount of love for rommel and so it's funny to see that this has been a feature since the actual war <laughs> <laughs> i actually really like the way that this part that the section that we're reading starts just I thought it was an interesting perspective. I understand why I would assume the Nazi parts would have been banned or not allowed or redacted mm -hmm. or censored just because, you know, you probably don't want to read anything from the invading perspective, even if it is, you know, making fun of them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, this is all about the commanders thinking ill of each other and it's a power game between them for status. Even when Richthofen and, and Paulus are discussing the invasion of Stalingrad, you know, keep in mind that, that this is this is the ground in the air discussing. It's really an unsaid fight between the two, between Richthofen, who thinks that the ground should be subordinate to air and Paulus, who thinks that the air should be subordinate to ground. Yeah, I mean, it, I think to me, it's pretty clear what he's saying. And why it would it would not at all be easy to mistake any sort of sympathy or anything for the Nazis, obviously. But maybe maybe it would be subtle to some people. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's because it's really about the essence of each state, basically, individualism or collectivism. If you're going to just break it down, whether you have any yeah. sort of capacity to work together or whether you're just trying to cut each other down at like any possible time. Which is a huge feature of this section we're going to go into yeah. reading as we yeah. go from the front uh, back to Berlin. So after being introduced to a Colonel Forrester, who is a, an old friend and a former superior officer of General Weller, they discuss Stalingrad as if it's already theirs, having heard Hitler's command that Stalingrad must fall. Briefly, we hear that the two of them back in the early days of the party, both of them had actually spoken very ill, kind of almost called the leadership bloodthirsty stupid really and of course now another man had it's noted forgotten either of this but the unwritten code of the reich didn't allow even such close friends to recall those conversations so as we go back to berlin we learn about the press and their perspective on war now that after the grim days of late 1941 and the crushing defeat in the winter campaign so now in the summer of 1942 with the fall of kirch with sevastopol with rostov on don with the german wehrmacht and the air force just steamrolling back across the soviet union now the tone of the press is well has gone from grim grim restraint it's it is said to joyful fantasies and it kind of papers over these former losses and it's written the successes of those recent battles displace the memory of terrible losses of crosses on soldiers graves of the alarming urgency of the last winter relief campaign and of how train after train day and night had brought back wounded and frostbitten soldiers from the eastern front 
These successes silenced those who saw the whole Eastern Campaign as an act of madness, those who worried about the strength of the Red Army and were still troubled by the Fuhrer's failure to keep his promise to capture Moscow and Leningrad by mid-November 1941, and bring the war to a swift, victorious conclusion. Life in Berlin was now all bustle and noise. Uh, and this kind of is, is a big feature of this section, talking about how the, the propaganda, the, the notion of life as a something that the Nazi party creates overruling what life is actually like, what people are actually going through. Uh, that's a huge feature of what we're going to be talking about. So from going from this broad perspective on the press, we join the New Reich Chancellery. Uh, we learn about the lives of the people who work there and then join a man who is described in not the most generous terms, <laughs> features, but in a pretty funny way before the, after about half a page of description, calling this man weirdly proportioned with bags under his eyes, you know, with the, with the torso of a skinny man, but the legs of a fat man, it's revealed that this is in fact Hitler. And I think it's notable for an author who is so insistent on comparing and talking about the people, even in joining the New York Chancellery, we're just talking about the officers, the, their common lives, the janitors, the normal people who are working there. But Hitler, Hitler does not get that. In fact, the most, I will say the nicest thing that is said here is, while he was asleep, lying in his long nightshirt under a blanket, mumbling, snoring, chewing his lip, grinding his large teeth, turning from side to side, drawing his knees up to his chest, while he was asleep, this man in his 50s had much in common with any other middle-aged man with a shattered nervous system, an impaired metabolism, and heart palpitations. It was indeed during these hours that Hitler was closest to being a human. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that is you'd think it's the nicest thing he says but I feel like if you are that type of personality the idea that you could have that much in common with just anyone else is so horrifying to think of yeah <laughs> which I you know I feel like it's a good psychological burn yeah yes it is got him. and got him. <laughs> and so Hitler is joined by Himmler, who gives a report on Stalingrad. Uh, we learn more about the psychology of, of Himmler and kind of what it takes to serve Hitler as he does. A lack of freedom of thought uh, and a need to avoid any notion of obsequiousness. Anything that could get him ejected from his position as one of the vaunted few who Hitler still listens to. Although, of course, Hitler doesn't really listen to him in the entirety of the section after learning about Himmler's psychology is Hitler raging against Himmler, raging against his other allies, raging against his generals, raging against his troops for failing to understand his vision and why everyone, you know, everyone's failing him and they don't understand why he's doing what he does. And they are the enemies as much as, you know, the others, the, the other, the Slavs, the Jews, the, the Roma, the, you know, the Poles, the everyone really that they see as their race enemies. So Colonel Forster, the, the friend of General Weller, has arrived back in, in Berlin, and he's called to give the Fuhrer a briefing from the, the Wehrmacht's perspective on the invasion of Stalingrad. It takes him a while to actually see the Fuhrer. He's waiting for almost an entire day. But when he's finally called in, he realizes that actually Richthofen is screwed over Paulus, because when Richthofen and Paulus are talking, Paulus says, I need about four days or five days to prepare me. And Richthofen says, well, I need a week to get the Air Force ready. You know, we're more complex than the ground troops. I'll tell Hitler that. Now, in the presence of Hitler, we find out that Richthofen has, in fact, said, I'm going to be ready immediately. So Paulus uh, asking for five days to prepare looks very bad, uh, you know, reflecting this continual struggle for power among them, you know, at the actual necessities of military operations falling under the feet of, you know, personal self-aggrandizement or advancement. So as Forster is explaining the plan to invade Stalingrad to Hitler, Hitler really is not paying very close attention, and Forster kind of has this realization. 
On the previous day, Forrester had imagined that the order to take Stalingrad on 25th August was born from precise calculation and a careful analysis of the military situation. He had imagined the Fuhrer taking into account the Panzer's fuel reserves, the mobility of these support columns, and the quantitative and qualitative superiority enjoyed by the German Air Force. He had imagined that the Fuhrer had a precise grasp of the dynamic force encapsulated in each infantry division, of the speed with which ammunition and reserves could be brought up to the front, of the efficiency of the liaison and signals sections. He had imagined the Fuhrer as having at his command an almost infinite amount of information. He had thought that when the Fuhrer had said, Stalingrad moose fallen, he was taking into account the effect of meteorological conditions on the state of the roads in the Don Steppe, the stinking of British convoys attempting the voyage to Murmansk, the fall of Singapore and Rommel's impending attack on Alexandria. Now, though, Forrester realized that the words Stalingrad moose fallen had nothing to do with the reality of the war. They were simply an expression of Hitler's wish. This is a great line. Yeah, and, and really, it's kind of the encapsulation, I think, of so much of what the section is talking yeah. about, of, of the, the actual realities, the day-to-day realities, which uh, Grossman himself, as, as, as a writer, is so concerned with, the people in which he rages against, you know, even Soviet leaders for failing to talk to their soldiers or talk to the civilians. He takes it to a new height and kind of says, well, this is the inherent reason of, like, the failure of, of fascism or of this, of this particular form of Nazi fascism uh, is that it's not just like a, a failing to talk to people, but simply like a, a, an entire detachment from the material reality of the world and to a world that only exists in some kind of mystical, you know, individual realm. Well, I think it's also a critique of people who look back through history and think of, I feel like Hitler and then also Napoleon gets placed on that same pedestal of like, well, not a good person, but military genius. When it was just right. like, well, not really just wanted to do that and did. You know, it's in some situations, it wasn't like some grand calculation. Right. There's a, we'll talk more about this later. Maybe we'll read it. But there's a section in which she kind of says, you know, why do we, why do we praise an arsonist if instead of burning a, you know, town barn, he instead burns several cities? Mm -hmm. You know, we should like disregard these such people from history, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in this part. This is, yeah, I thought this was, I thought this was a really, I thought uh, chapter 30, I think is maybe one of my favorite things I've read this entire book. And that's tough competition. Yeah. It just because is. of, I think a really accurate psychological assessment of uh, maybe like not Hitler necessarily. It is a psychological assessment of Hitler, you know, but of course I, you know, I don't put much actual stock in like armchair sure. of armchair psychology. Uh, however, as a, like trying to understand the psychology of fascism uh, embodied through a theoretical mm -hmm. character of Hitler, I think it's quite good. I think that from a narrative perspective, like I think part of the reason the book had to be so long is you really have to, you have to earn some of these chapters. I feel like right. it does take a while for Grossman to really kind of step out of the the narrator and give you his own thoughts. I mean, he obviously sprinkles it throughout, but I felt like this section in particular, kind of with the lead up to the battle, was particularly dense with Grossman thoughts. And it was good. I just think it wouldn't have been good if he started the book with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so who is this happened. guy? This had to happen yeah. 550 pages in. Right, right. Like, I'm invested. I want to know what he thinks. Yeah, that's fair. But before we get to what he thinks, we join Lieutenant Peter Bach. Now, uh, Peter Bach is a friend of Maria Forster's, who is the daughter of uh, this Colonel Forster we've been following. Lieutenant Bach uh, is temporarily back in Berlin on leave, and he finds a people that he doesn't really like. And this is kind of one of the ironies of, you know, 
not really irony, but of, of like this, these fascist elements is that they're fighting for this idea of Germanness, but they don't really like Germans all that much. <laughs> he like is disgusted by the old people he sees, or he kind of refers to them as mothballs almost. And he can't stand being back in Berlin. He wants to go back to the war front. And even, you know, his old friend Lunds, they don't get along like they used to. And he kind of looks down on Lunds, except for the point when Lunds voices something that he agrees with, but can't really say uh, because he's a, you know, an officer in the, well, a lieutenant in the Wehrmacht. But Lunds, who is a, an intellectual, says to him when they're drinking one night, I work at a factory. Up above the machines are huge banners with slogan, Du bist nicht, dein Volk ist alles, which kind of translates to you are nothing, the Volk is everything. Sometimes I think about this. Why am I nothing? Am I not Volk? And you too? Are you not Volk? Our era loves grand statements. People are hypnotized by their apparent profundity. What nonsense they are. And I think this kind of incidentally sends up, like the, uh, even though I think you could, the idea of people coming together, you, you could very broadly, in a vulgar sense, uh, compare them between Nazism and fascism. And I think Grossman's trying to draw a line here that in this Nazi version of this togetherness of unity, the Volk, the Volk is everything, but the Volk also isn't real. The Volk is an idea and the individual is nothing. Whereas Grossman puts up the, not directly, but like the, the Soviets as kind of the, well, the people, of course, the, in this case, the Volk in the Soviet context are the worker. There's an idea that the worker is everything. Now, the, the historical reality of that, that's a little bit different. However, you know, that's the, the, that's the, the difference in ideology that Grossman's trying to set up here. It is interesting. I would not agree with him. With uh, Grossman in, in this or this particular yeah, formulation. Yeah, this idea like, oh, our generation loves these kind of bold statements. I actually think that it is a really insidious kernel of basically all ideology. That I, and what he's discussing, I think kind of around this time and at this point is not specific to the Nazis. I really do believe that this stems from actually from advertising and from thinkers who were trying to work on how to mobilize populations in mass. And so mm -hmm. it's actually, it's not really necessarily specifically tied to the Nazis. They definitely used it, but so did a lot of other people, the Soviets included. Yeah. And we still Which is do. a good point. But that's a different podcast yeah. <laughs> topic. It's a different, that's maybe a different podcast too. Yeah. It's part of my master's thesis. So, so I got, I got thoughts on it. <laughs> that's, we'll come back to that one day in, in an episode. I know. I do your thesis. a Russian literature master's and I'm like, I'm going to write about advertising. <laughs> <laughs> like a moron. And get a load of this guy. Get a load of this guy. <laughs> Uh, so we continue on in chapter 30, and we the chapter starts off by saying, basically, Hitler's unimportant. It says, like, it doesn't matter who Hitler is, because Hitler, the rise of German fascism needed a Hitler, and then Hitler happened to be that person, kind of saying that it's that the psychology of Hitler is immaterial. It's rather his psychology matched that which the fascist uh, rise in power needed in uh, Germany at the time. Uh, but he does say, the narrator says, we'll understand his character, though, will better help us understand the nature of fascism because his character essentially reflects fascism and then goes on to just just fucking lay down the, the belt. The I wrote in the margins here, I said, wow, drag him. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, he goes on to elaborate that Hitler is essentially a lifelong failure, failing to do well in school, failing to get into even modest art schools, failing to carry out a revolution, failure in relationships. And he says, before and after he came to power, Hitler was essentially the same person, a petty bourgeois, a Philistine, and a failure. And he continues to talk about this this idea of fascism as merely as as the ideology of failures, those who cannot understand labor as being superior. And I'm going to cover a couple of the lines. Feel free to, if you got any other stuff you want to talk about, Matt, you know, feel free to break in. But he goes to talk about the relationship between the misreadings of Nietzsche and the idea of the Superman built into this Nazi ideology. Um, and he writes, we see more clearly than ever that the Superman is born out of the despair of the weak, not from the triumph of the strong. The ideas of individual liberty, internationalism, the social equality of all workers, these are the ideas of people confident in the power of their own minds and the creative force of their own labor. The only form of violence countenanced by these ideas is the violence inflicted by Prometheus on his chains. So this is a more like direct one, like differentiation between, you know, like the ideologies of Nazism, and the ideology of the Soviet Union stated more directly. He goes on to say that you're talking about Hitler's ideologies as... Hitler saw the man sowing a vast wheat field as inferior to the thug who smashes him over the back of the head with a crowbar, reflecting the fact that violence was seen as the fact, the fact of rightness, the fact of the ability to be the chosen people was reflective of the fact that violence, that was the only measure, nothing else. If efficiency, everything falls to the wayside of the ability to do violence to others. Wheat field? So. <laughs> Tolstoy emerges on the scene and just absolutely stunners Hitler. <laughs> From the <laughs> he destroys him with his scythe. <laughs> um, so the the thug who smashes him over the head, back of the head with the crowbar. This is the philosophy of a loser who has fallen into despair, who is unable to achieve anything through labor, but is endowed with a strong mind, ferocious energy, and a burning ambition. He goes to talk more on about Germany, the people as a whole. He deceived many who might have stood against him. They mistook his lies for truth and his hysteria for sincerity. They saw his religion of hatred as love of Germany, his powerful animal logic as a token of genius, and his criminal dictatorship as a promise of freedom. That was such a good line. Um, that's such, yeah, it's, this whole chapter is full of good lines. Uh, I, I like this one a lot. This kind of gets the idea of what you're talking about of uh, also Napoleon's too. Mm -hmm. Physicists usually feel free to ignore the infin infinitesimally small value that expresses the Earth's gravitational attraction to a stone. They do not deny the re theoretical reality of this attraction, but it is only the stone's gravitational attraction to the Earth that they need to take into practical account. Hitler, at the height of his success, wanted to do the opposite. He wanted to ignore the gravitational attraction of a stone, or a grain of sand, to the Earth. A mere grain of sand himself, he wanted to restructure the world according to the laws of his own will and intuition. So actually, I want to, I want to read the line that you were referencing earlier. Uh, talking about this and criticizing the idea of great men of history as conquerors. Can we call someone a great man if he has not brought into the people's lives a single atom of good, a single atom of freedom and intelligence? Can we call someone a great man if he has left behind him only ashes, ruins, and congealed blood, only poverty and the stench of racism, only the graves of the countless children and old people he has killed? Can we call someone a great man because his unusual intelligence, able to detect and co-opt every dark and reactionary force, proved as virulent and destructive as the bacteria of bubonic plague? I've never read a stronger condemnation like of anyone or anything in my life than this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit more. I'll give you a thought, but we'll come back to it after I finish this, this last paragraph. Sure. 
The 20th century is a critical and dangerous time for all humanity. It is time for intelligent people to renounce, once and for all, the thoughtless and sentimental habit of admiring a criminal if the scope of his criminality is vast enough, of admiring an arsonist if he sets fire not just to a village, but to capital cities, of tolerating a demagogue if he deceives not just an uneducated lad from a village, but entire nations, of pardoning a murderer because he has killed not one individual, millions. Such criminals must be destroyed like rabid wolves. We must remember them only with disgust and burning hatred. We must expose their darkness to the light of day. And if the forces of darkness engender new Hitlers, playing on people's basest and most backwards instinct in order to further new criminal designs against humanity, let no one see in them any trait of grandeur or heroism. History's only true heroes, the only true leaders of mankind, are those who help to establish freedoms, who see freedom as the greatest strength of an individual, a nation, or a state, who fight for the equality in all respects of every individual, people, and nation. Um, the end of so, the like book. You said, the end. <laughs> An opinion I hold is that there has never been a good... Uh, that there's only ever been one good eulogy written for a politician, and that was Hunter S. Thompson's for Richard Nixon. But I take that back because this, in a way, is... It's not intended to be, but it is a eulogy of sorts for Hitler, and I think this might be the only other good eulogy written for a politician. I just think of, like, what a sense of historical perspective you must have when you're writing your book to even just consider your own place in your own century. Like, right. isn't that crazy? I mean, I guess they're, like, pretty far into it. <laughs> but, like, I've never even, like, for myself, maybe that's because I don't do anything important. But, like, <laughs> you know? I'm never like, ah, this yeah. will be surely a great moment of this century. Right. Anyways, that's not really that important. I just wanted to... No, I just yeah. kind of, like, it really took me out of the book when I read that. Me I too. I feel I'll... like I don't see a lot of writers pondering their place in their own century. <laughs> No. It's like the no. biggest, almost like Tolstoyan ego move I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. All right. Part four, we undermine the idea of Grossman as the Soviet Tolstoy, and now we're bringing it back. No, I think Tolstoy is more like a pre-revolutionary Grossman. <laughs> <laughs> Broke, Grossman is a Soviet Tolstoy. Woke, Grossman is not a Soviet Tolstoy. Bespoke, Tolstoy is a pre-war Grossman. <laughs> That's it. Put that on the shirt. <laughs> yeah it's also i mean again it's a further you know elaboration on grossman's talking about the ideology of trying to give it a diagnosis of sorts and i think you know today saying that okay this like fascism is an ideology of, of losers is it's not like that's not I've, I've heard that 10 billion times um however i think grossman takes an interesting perspective on things by talking about by specifically because it's easy to say that, but he's like, no, let me let me outline to you how failure becomes becomes success and how then also ties it not just to like specifically like, oh, this is a unique form of evil. But in fact, this is something that pops up again and again. You know, these people who become arsonists, not of a village, but of, a, you know, of, of capital cities, of demagogues who are not just you know selling snake oil, but, you know, selling racism across the continent. It's got a, I, I think, a much more specific I guess I'll say diagnosis and understanding of how the human tendency kind of feeds into that, and, you know, not section this off as some unique evil, but saying, well, here are the features which arise, make it arise in, you know, in any given country. So I, I know we don't talk about current politics usually on the podcast, but when you were reading this section, like for like some <laughs> parts of it, weren't you like yeah. a little too close to home? A little bit. <laughs> Didn't like it. A little 
I had those same thoughts. I was like, I, you know, that's not usually what we talk about, but it it's, there not, a few it's not irrelevant particularly now. Particularly resonant passages. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also think that, well, we talk about Grossman and Tolstoy, but also I think the, actually this line that you read, we can now see more clearly than ever that the Superman is born of the despair of the weak, not from the triumph of the strong, made me think about Dostoevsky a lot. Particularly Raskolnikov. Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, there's just just a lot of tie-ins that you can kind of draw out, I think. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to draw them all out. (laughs) I think that's a separate (laughs) work. That's just a a question I'm posing. Or just uh, maybe on a a deeper level, you know, he's obviously engaging in in quite a long line of intellectual thinking yeah it's not just a mimicry of tolstoy's style or anything like that he really is trying to engage on a a much deeper level yeah definitely trying to get into i mean i think you can see that in the way that we've talked about this previously that we see we've talked about the tensions of ideology in the book and part of that coming from knowing who he's writing for knowing that they're going to be censors um maybe figuring out maybe being himself uneven on some of these things we were kind of doubling back this was written over a long period of time you know of course grossman experienced great tragedy at the hands of the nazis and also suppression at the form of his own government so you see back and forth and i think it's only natural as he's kind of conversing with himself but uh, there are also moments where it comes together in and almost a crescendo i would say where it all seems to have a, a great sense of clarity and you know here where he's condemning Hitler, but also those of those like Hitler and those so-called great men of history who he, you know, refers to as, you know, arsonists and murderers and says, you know, it's now time for us to move beyond admiring such people as a whole. And it, yeah. it, it really doesn't mince words either about it. No, he's not saying we should let them retire peacefully on an island uh, somewhere, somewhere nice. No, he says they need to be destroyed <laughs> like rabid wolves. Yeah, that's Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the that's the German section of this part. So that's where Grossman ended the book. <laughs> that's where Grossman single-handedly ended the war. Yep. Oh, sorry. My last thing. You made me think of it. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm the physicist. Okay. Not only. Yep. <laughs> not, I, I. I wonder if this is where she got this line of her book in an unwomanly face of war. Alexeyevich says that she's not interested in these whatever large. I'm paraphrasing these large-scale events but she's more interested in the grains of sand of history and when he's talking about you read the line when when grossman says a mere grain of sand himself wanted to restructure the world just this approach to looking at the world as if it's made up of grains of sand not as if it is this accumulation of sand right Mm, Uh, is a particularly interesting way a real way that writers have, I find, right, of looking at things yeah. and dissecting them. Not necessarily right. specific to Grossman or Tolstoy or Alexeyevich, but the fact that she had that specific quote that stuck with me made me wonder how influenced she was by Grossman. Yeah. My guess? That's a good question. A bit. <laughs> Maybe somewhat. My guess? She's read them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that, well, it's it's especially poignant, I would say, in Grossman, because he's writing this, you know, in the late war years to the early post-war years. And so looking at the world as like grains of sand, also, it's also applied to the German nation at this time. It's not just like, you know, as you might understandably come to as the 
as someone who's has lost family to the Nazis who were specifically targeted because they were Jewish, you can you might imagine him feeling this great sense of grievance against, you know, the army, the nation that it is a whole. But even in these moments when he's coming in to just absolutely, you know, backhand Hitler to the moon, he's also talking about the individual fears and, you know, the secret hidden world of Berlin, of the second half of Berlin at night, which is worried about wounded soldiers and the lack of rations and, you know, what are we going to do going forward? And then kind of says, well, would these, will this daytime world of, you know, of Hitler where, you know, reality is merely an extension of his fist in the nighttime world of people and their concerns, you know, what would happen to that after the war? Would those become one or would they continue on as, as always? So this, this perspective perspective of this, this multitude of perspectives is even carried through to the literal heart of the Nazi empire at this time. Yeah, I found that interesting too, that he, even though it would be easy to do and even understandable, but he just refuses to condemn Germany as a whole and all Germans. He really is insistent on actually, and I think this is what gives it that sort of holistic and interesting and nuanced approach is looking at how like well-intending people can get swept up into it and how not only that how there is actual right still underground dissent how that can kind of manifest in in whatnot particularly with the, yeah. the intellectuals as he does right and also too um him kind of pointing out some of the funny not funny exactly but not haha funny but you know, like, ir- oh, no, ironic funny. features of history of, <laughs> of so for example, there's a section, I forget which part of this is, if it's in chapter 30 or chapter 29, where Grossman kind of is talking about fascism as a loser ideology of, of that ideology of losers. And he says it has no connection to reality. They had this idea of a pure German race, but with the influx of slaves and forced labor from all over Europe, in fact, this was the time of a great, much, much more race mixing than mm. previously was probably mm-hmm. true mm-hmm. or even possible. And so he, he comes in and is pointing out those those features like that, you know, the contradictions of ideology in, in life, which is perhaps, you know, Grossman in real life was even when in Germany was always talking to people. So whenever I see a vignette or a life story, I always wonder, is this something that was created, something that was Grossman wants to portray for the feeling? Or is this Grossman actually portraying something that actually he saw or somebody actually talked to? Because so much of this book is based on real events he either saw or heard about. Yeah, I think that begs the question, right? What is the limit of an idea? How powerful can an idea be? And I think this is where Grossman is wrong, personally, in that he seems to think, right, fascism, the idea of it is it's fundamentally like not able to exist in reality. Like it's not quite, it's like incongruous with reality, I guess. And for me, I actually think that ideas can structure reality and can reshape reality. I just think fascism is not a good example of that kind of idea. Mm. Well, that's kind of the same argument that isn't that that Victor Shroom and his teacher have mm-hmm. has where his his teacher says, "Well, no, it's just uh, what you would almost think would be Grossman's perspective is well, the German people can't be changed by ideology. They'll come out on it, you know, who they were before. And Victor says to him, no, I mean, if that's true, then that would also imply that our own ideologies can't change us. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is, you know, we should not be doing this, which provides, I mean, almost a sense of tension here between, yeah. you know, the statements, which I don't think is a contradiction, but. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have to believe that since I study Gramsci. So if I didn't, then I, I would have to get my <laughs> Gramsci card revoked. Yeah, <laughs> I will say this does. This is really interesting. The going back to I know I was going to continue on, but no. Um, chapter no three continuing. made me think is. <laughs> 
it's interesting because there's this, uh, I, I don't know if you ever read I'm a Cesare. No, but I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to leave it ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> People are like, wow, Matt's so well read, you know, like that. Yeah. As they do. That's fair. As the fans That's fair. about. <laughs> well, I'm going to go ahead and apologize already for my name of, of my pronunciation of I'm a Cesare. I refuse to learn French. I will not. I will not. Oh, it's I a French? Okay, French. then I don't feel bad. <laughs> well, so he's not French. He's, so he's Martinusian, and he's kind of the, the founder of, um, he's done a lot. You should look him up. He's very interesting. But he wrote an article on, on like Hitlerism in World War II, and I, I don't have the name of it right now, but I'm going to find it. And, um, you know, I'm a Cesare himself, who was black, and he kind of just like lambasts people who, not like people like Grossman, but people who think of this violence done upon Europe as some kind of strange feature of history. And says like, how could this be anything else rather than this is the same or similar violence to, that European colonialist powers have been inflicting on South America, on Africa, on the, you know China and Asia as a whole, and minus Japan, depending on the era. But it's the same exact same sort of crimes that they've been inflicting for years upon the rest of the world. So how can we be surprised when this very same violence happens in Europe? It's the natural extension that eventually, if it's okay to, you know, in Congo for the Belgian colonialist powers to murder and mutilate upwards of 2 million people, why can we not also conclude that one day someone will look at someone in Europe itself and say, you are also someone who is outside the right sort of race or group or whatever and you we can also kill or mutilate two million of you um that's something you don't really see in a lot of i would say like more western views i mean not that that i miss wasn't western himself but like on mainstream views of the war and i think grossman is the person that comes closest to kind of addressing that idea where he's looking at hitler not as some sort of weird and you see this this is a perspective you see really often as if like violence and nazism is some sort of like weird like where did that come from angle or rather is addressing it as a tendency that humans can have and one that they have the power to buy into or not to buy into mm -hmm. i don't really know where we're going with that but it, it was just i was thinking about it while we were reading that chapter for the record i have read him <laughs> I, <laughs> I just there's a thing when you see names that you've never heard out loud yeah <laughs> and then i've also never actually heard it out loud <laughs> no you did great probably i don't know perfect um, <laughs> beautiful yeah, there was some... I don't remember if it was this part or where... I don't even remember who, who it was in this book, because why would I? But just there's been like some parts where <laughs> people are bringing back like like artifacts or things from different places that the Nazis have taken over that are not Russia or the Soviet Union or that are like, I don't know, wherever. And they're like, wow, look at how cool and exotic this thing is. Right. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, oh, it's, it was it's in this part, Forster. wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was. It's like Colonel Forster's like bringing back little trinkets from Ukrainian homes mm. or shoes of like an Azerbaijani child yeah. or something. And you're like, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like a fun, it wasn't like a, oh, I just happened to be in, I don't think it was Azerbaijan, but it's like some similar either like kind of, you know, a country in that rough, rough area of like, wasn't just like, oh, I was at, I was visiting in market and I happened to buy those because I thought they were neat. That's no, not how No, it's not the a Nazis good situation shoes. onto which he's stumbling upon children's shoes. I would... Mm -hmm. wager a guess you're right anyways which is yeah getting back to our conversation last time about grossman writing in some ways reflecting like this very russia-centric view of the war but also grossman in less direct ways acknowledges in a lot of the the non-russian people involved in that side of the war too it's a small thing but it's still it's very pretty present right like bringing back such quote-unquote trophies from other smaller soviet republics or 
the orphan children are we getting too soon being from all over the place or being Volga Germans or, you know, Kazakh or Ukrainian or, you know, similar. Yeah, he does it sometimes. And then other times he'll be talking about soldiers at Stalingrad and he'll be like, and they let out a really good Russian laugh, even though like most (laughs) of them probably weren't ethnic Russians. Yeah. But I think I'd like to imagine he's doing it in like a, you know, look at our sense of unity kind of way. But it still comes across in a way that I'm like, ah, I just wish you would have stopped while you were ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of, of things we wish would stop, uh, the bombing of Stalingrad commences. So we have, uh, before we even get to the bombing uh, of uh, General Vyktofen's you know, planes laying waste to Stalingrad. We join an average morning in Stalingrad, which is noted that it's much like any other day in Stalingrad. And the hours up to when the war came to Stalingrad, it was people were chatting. You know, we overhear two women knitting. People are getting ready for their day. Cooks are just trying to find some embers in last night's fire so they can light a cigarette. People are going about their lives and doing, being dicks, being nice, et cetera, et cetera. And Grossman writes of this. And we're used to calling simple, ordinary folk And those we are used to calling simple, ordinary folk had no idea that in a few hours, many of them would be performing deeds that future generations would refer to as immortal, and that they would do this as naturally and straightforwardly as they had until then gone about their everyday work. It is not only heroes who love freedom, take joy in labor, know maternal feelings, and feel loyalty to their country. And here, perhaps, lies humanity's greatest hope. Great deeds can be accomplished by simple, ordinary people. A while back, we had this conversation about these features of the story, which are ordinary-ordinary and ordinary-heroic. And, and here we find, you know, Grossman emphasizing this notion of ordinary-heroic features of people, in which that these people who are, whatever their personal character is, they can... I think that's one of the other things I like about Grossman is that he's not, he doesn't shy away from characters being, you know, not always great people or being, you know, not that like good or bad, but just that they have individual failings, but that doesn't... You know, that doesn't condemn an individual. It doesn't mean that they won't be there for you in the the moment that it matters. No, it's actually, to me, it's a much more realistic kind of socialist realist hero. Right. It's like you can be the hero when it really counts. You don't have to be the hero all the time in every single situation because obviously that is not possible. Yeah. In fact, I would say that actually Grossman kind of takes a swing at this kind of notion. When when, when, when these two women are talking, he writes of one of them. Uh, who is like very, who's very judgmental. Years later, when these world-shaking events have receded far into the past, people like her look back at those days and see only somber burial mounds bearing witness to superhuman achievements. They then come to think that everyone alive then was to her a spiritual giant. This noble but naive view of the past is no less misguided. That, you know, looking back, like no one's that, no one is a superhuman, even in this, this context, you know, and we've got the, obviously the Nazi context where he's you know, saying that this is like a context, this is like the ideology of people who need a Superman in the same way kind of says, well, no, Superman don't exist in our own context either. And if you think they are, then you misunderstand who people were. They're just ordinary people. And I, I think a lot about from his article, Ukraine without Jews. And he's talking about the Jewish people and Jewish life. And he says, you know, they lived and died and sinned and did good deeds alongside Ukrainian people. And it's always stuck me that he put sinning before the good deeds and the, and good deeds almost as an afterthought. That, that was fronted such that that life had this complexity that they didn't have to be ups and downs and people had individual failings. And, you know, that's not not reflective on their place in history and how we should look at them and we should allow them to be (laughs) to be good people and sinners which Mm -hmm. are not contradictory 
not contradictory frames of reference at all, I think, in Grossman's writing. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. So we go from this uh, sense of, of unity, of, of heroism, and we join the planes demolishing the city. And it, it, it's a horrible, it, it is a long, long passage of destruction. Although Grossman points out at the end of the destruction of a million buildings cannot be as terrible as the death of a child in this bombing. You know, buildings can be rebuilt, but no power in the world can lift, you know, the almost weightless eyelashes that have closed over the eyes of dead children. So in the middle of all this, we follow the story of Varvara, and as she and Volodyan... Sorry, Varvara, I, I just wanted to say, it, that yeah. was a great passage, but also, even before that, the way he describes the buildings being knocked over, saying that mm. they began to die just as people die. And obviously, mm -hmm. it's not as sad as a child dying, but just, I thought the way that he described the buildings falling down was so vivid. Oh yeah, it was. It was, yeah, these were some quite interesting passages. So we, we saw, follow the story of Varvara in Volodya. Uh, keep in mind that Varvara is married to Pavel Andreev, who is the kind of model factory worker. They are being evacuated alongside the people from the orphanage. This is the same orphanage that Marussia was previously auditing. So we've got the, the director of the orphanage, Tokareva, uh, uh, and as well as many of the other people working there. And we follow the story through this as of Varvara and, and her grandson trying to find Natalia and the way that these refugees who went to Ravara had looked on almost like, you know, you're take, coming in our city, you're taking our food. And she realized that very quickly, all of them have her same story. They're leaving behind their life, their hopes and dreams, everything they spent so long building. You know, she talks to one man who says, you know, on the journey, you know, uh, before the war, his son had died. And while he's in, he's this is the third time he's being evacuated. The second time his wife died. And the third time evacuation, his uh, daughter-in-law was killed. So it's just him, an old man and his two granddaughters, uh, you know, and she finds that the two granddaughters like you know grasp onto his coat and look up at him as if he's some sort of hero even though he's a frail old man so we follow the story of many of these refugees and from there we go to this tale of a, a very long tale of a truck driver who is uh, supposed to get them some supplies but spends all day kind of dicking around essentially for dropping stuff off and as he leaves he becomes notably i think the first specific death of the book as he continued up the slope he could hear the engine struggling then he heard the howl of a falling bomb he pressed his head to the steering wheel, sensed with all his body the end of his life, thought with awful anguish, fuck that, and ceased <laughs> to exist. I've seen, I've read much more graphic and brutal death scenes in books, but I think there's just something so singularly terrible about only having a moment to think, yeah. having awful anguish and think, fuck, and then you're gone. Mm -hmm. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, that's about all there is. So we follow more interactions between the people in the boat, really quite touching ones. It's, it's very sweet, all things considered, that they're being evacuated. And, you know, you know this book, you know this isn't going to go well, but it's, you know, we follow the stories of many of the children we learned about when uh, Marussia had, had audited the orphanage. And at this point, Marussia has joined them as well. Marussia and Natalia, who is Varvara's daughter-in-law, they're just going to go to a certain point before Marussia comes back. And the children are, some of them are freaking out. Um, they begin to comfort each other. The one mute boy who is Ukrainian who saw both of his parents killed. Finally, he begins to speak and express that he's afraid, you know, and he's commenced to cry over his fear. And another of the boys, Slava, uh, kind of just like takes the, the, you know, the kid's hand and tells him like, no, I'm, I'm here right here with you. And like basically tries, even though they're the same age and both fearing over their loss and having both lost parents says, you know, I'll be, I'll protect you. I'll be your friend. And they, they set off in the launch, and there are many touching moments. And, of course, the boat stops working right as overhead. Um, German planes begin to fly and drop bombs all around them. 
and in that moment in in panic to get these the the children off the boat those sailors load most of the orphanage on there marusia gets on there varvara and Volodya try to get on but there's not enough space for them they push off and right as they push off the boat begins to work again and a cheer goes up and they begin to say you know like we'll meet them they'll meet the dinghy in the far side and as the people on the boat finish their cheer they look out and realize that the dinghy is now flipped over and is sinking rapidly and it disappears from there we follow the stories of the individual memory of the individual memories of the Shaposhnikov family as the bombing commences alexandra and sophia are at alexandra's apartment they flee very quickly they have moments of argument while they're going and sophia kind of saying oh you need to grab this and this and alexandra saying you know we don't it's not worth it uh, they go outside and realize that against all odds their building is mostly untouched at least by direct hits well many buildings around them have been reduced to rubble they, they go to a, a bomb shelter and we, we learn more about the interactions of people both good and bad there um and sophia kind of says after sitting there a while it's like well they're gonna need doctors they need to go to the hospital and so alexandra gives her a brooch and you know a kiss and as they're going a woman makes an anti-semitic comment about sophia and as alexandra is looking at sophia leave she knew grossman writes with startling clarity that she would never see her again Jenny, at the same time as the city's being bombed, she's just in a state of shock. She's just wandering around. Everyone around her thinks she's a mad woman. And it's noted that, uh, you know, what she sees in later days, it's noted that everything she says she saw, it wasn't all at once. It was over the course of days. So she really couldn't tell as the scene you're seeing itself is the same, her same, her same recollection of which is frazzled and in, inconsistent. And she just is basically watching the city, watching people's lives and everyone, you know, is like, you know, get down, but she just keeps wondering and get this line as she watches a, a mother dying while her son holds her. Human suffering. Will it be remembered in centuries to come? The stones of huge buildings endure and the glory of generals endures, but human suffering does not. Tears and whispers, a cry of pain and despair, the last sigh and groan of the dying, all this disappears along with the smoke and dust blown across the steppe by the wind. She comes to a bomb shelter and finds her mother Alexandra in there. Um, from there we continue on to Vera's story and she's you know, blown across the room by a bomb and like is running out and is like immediate. her first thought is that she needs to go to her family. And as she runs out into the street, there's just something about that, something forced that she can't even say. And the narrator says, you know, it, who knows really what force it was that made her turn and look back at the hospital and immediately march back in and just get right to work of getting people, evacuating patients from upper floors. In fact, even floors that other people have, have um, abandoned because it's too dangerous. She begins going up and, you know, by herself carrying, pulling patients down the corridor uh, and we go on an extended section of, you know, this, this theme has come up time and time again of the people, uh, people showing their, their real character. And it's noted that many people there were maybe drunkards or suspected of stealing. And Vera herself was, you know, known for being late or even ignoring patients. But in this moment, no one was surprised that she had stayed. And there are people who seem better and you know, might have expected to. And in fact, in the moment that they disappeared, people were actually not surprised that they were no longer there. We continue on from there to Andreev, uh, or Vera actually is eventually, she's so injured that she's made to go lie out in the, in the lawn. We follow Andreev, he sees standing in the factory floor, and he's wondering what happened to Varvara, and he realizes that he really misses her, and he doesn't know what to do, you know, because she is his life, and also is the factory, and he's looking at it as it's still working on the bombing, and wonders, you know, what, what will happen, what will go into the, what will happen in the future, and maybe I, it was all for nothing. And from here, we go to a broader perspective of Rick Toppin getting in a plane and going to see all the destruction and being pleased and, you know, a condemnation of, of people who see destruction and think that this is some sort of advancement. 
And I, I kind of want to end on two last, I have been reading a lot of lines today, this episode's gone long, but I want to end on two last things that the narrator ends on. As always, when some catastrophe tests people to the utmost, many of the inhabitants of Stalingrad behaved in un unexpected ways. It has often been said that during a natural disaster, people cease to act like human beings, that they become puppets driven by some blind instinct of self-preservation. And there were indeed people in Stalingrad who pilfered what had been entrusted to them, who looted vodka shops and food depots. There was pushing and shoving and sometimes fighting as people tried to board ferries. There were some whose duty was to remain in Stalingrad, but who chose to cross to the East Bank. There were others who liked to make out that they were born warriors, but who on this day showed only the most pitiful weakness. Such observations are often made in a sad whisper, as if they constitute some unpalatable but inescapable final truth. In reality, however, they are only part of the truth. Amid the smoke and thunder of exploding bombs, steelworkers at Red October remained by their open hearth furnaces. The main tractor factory workshops, the hot shop and the assembly and repair shops, worked on without a minute's break. At Stalgrez, the engineer in charge of the boiler did not leave his post even when he was showered from head to foot with shattered breaking glass and a splinter from a heavy bomb took out half of the control lever. There were more than a few policemen, firemen, soldiers, and militiamen who died trying to extinguish fires that could not be extinguished. There are many accounts of the wonderful courage of children of the calm, clear wisdom shown by elderly workers. At times like this, misconceptions are exposed for what they are. The burning streets of Stalingrad were a testing ground for a true measure of man. And uh, as Rick Toppin is flying above the city, he believes he's seeing the death, its final death throes. Uh, but in fact, the narrator says, this is not so. A great city was perishing, but this did not mean that Russia was being enslaved. Still less that she was dying. Amid the smoke and ashes, the Soviet people's strength, love and belief in freedom was, was still obstinately alive, even growing stronger. And this indestructible force was already beginning to triumph over the futile, futile violence of those trying to enslave it. So this is a whirlwind of a uh, kind of denouement to the lead of a fi literally 550 pages of getting to the actual invasion of Stalingrad. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. I think that I, I guess just not having read this or knowing uh, like anything about this, except that it would be about Stalingrad in some way. First of all, much better than I thought, even though I had not a ton of expectation has far exceeded anything I could have imagined. But also, it's really not a book about the war at all. Mm. It's a book about stuff, and there's also war happening. Yeah. Right? Book about life, really. As I've jokingly said, but it's true. Yeah, no, that's very true. And then the war comes, and it makes itself known. It's not a war of some eras where the war is like in the background of you know noble families who are thinking about it. It's the war who's, which is affecting everyone in it. And Yeah you know, individual, the individual lives to, you know, I was, I was enraptured by each of the scenes of, you know, each of the family members and their disparate stories and the ways they reacted and the varieties of, of every human interaction that they saw at this time. Or of course, you know, the sadness of the fact that tens of thousands of people, people were dying at this moment and that, you know, this family's not protective of that. And the moment we see, we follow the deaths of some of the family members we've been with for, well, I guess I'll say probable deaths of the family members who have been with their 500 pages that just happens in that moment. Yeah, I was rereading it. It know. was ambiguous. Yeah. I thought it read as if the bomb hit the boat and then when they saw it reappear, that was like everyone was dead. But I, it could be read as if the bomb, there was so much water around where the bomb had hit that it flipped them and it is possible that they survived. Though I yeah, feel like it's... if Grossman does that, it is only to kill them off at a later date. I'm still skeptical <laughs> he's leaving everyone alive. I don't see it. 
Yeah, and, and more so because this scene is, I forget, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but this is pulled one-to-one from a story that Grossman himself heard of, of you know, this exact event happening where the evacuation barge takes off, stops working, people get in the dinghy, the barge starts working, but as the dinghy has already gone far ahead, uh, they have to watch helplessly as all the children, old people they loaded into are, are, I think, actually were gunned down by German planes. Hmm. Worse. So, yeah. <laughs> so... To move us away from talking about children being gunned down by planes. Yes, that's fair. I have only a few remaining points because we have been talking our way through this, which has been quite wonderful. Thank you for your company. I really like this passage of of Genya just kind of wandering through the war zone. It is one reminiscent of the scene in war and peace where pierre is just kind of wandering around his well I, he's like he's intentionally seeking out a battle and then he gets all turned around and he's like whoa this is crazy uh it's a little different because Genya did not ask for her city to be <laughs> bombed but there's a similar mm-hmm. sense of disorientation in war that is totally takes you out of what is happening and your ability to process anything but two I don't know if if this was just me or any time. If I don't know if this was just me or if anyone else notices this, there are a handful of words in Russian literature that when I see or hear, I immediately link to something else. And one of them is ship. So this passage where Genya and I see this is where I think I'm right. There's a lot of there's a lot of textual evidence for this. And it's a thing nobody cares at all if I'm right about, but I'm going to go off on it. <laughs> so this passage, Ingenia w- with her artist's eye, which could be satirical at this point, I don't even know. With her artist's eye, her ability to see inner unexpected similarities, suddenly she saw the building as a huge five-story ship emerging from a misty smoke-filled harbor into a raging sea. So one, I think this is hilarious because we've spent all this time talking about how she's not really actually a good artist. And... <laughs> It is not insightful, but I guess to each their own. This is, I think, being told from her perspective here. So, But it made me think of Lermontov and his poem, mm. The Sail, which is like, it, like, if you were to read any Russian poem, like this is probably one of the only ones you'd have ever read, right? Everyone's read that one. It's about a ship in a storm. And that's basically it. Um, <laughs> and it just made me, it made me think about that. And on... And on how deep of a literary level I really think Grossman is trying to engage in. Because that means that we've had Tolstoy most clearly. I think we definitely had Dostoevsky here. We've definitely had Turgenev. And we have Lermontov. And so it's just interesting the way that he uses these kind of, right, these same ideas, same thoughts, and just trying to like mesh them into this 20th century framework is very interesting. Right. Yeah. That's all I had on that. No, it feels like, uh, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I, I think it, uh, we talked a lot about Grossman almost writing like a, jokingly, I guess we've been calling it a true socialist realism where, you know, the people aren't super, aren't super humans, but they're ordinary dash ordinary, which, you know, also allows them to be ordinary dash heroic. And I think uh, in, in some ways, this book almost reads more as just like a work of pure, I guess, r- r- pure realism to me. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's looking, it's, it's telling you about the underside you know of all the people of the difficulties of people's failings of systematic thefts of you know you know robbing of, of like refugees and all this other stuff it's it's not a it's not a rosy view definitely of the of what it was like to be in the soviet union during the war at least in the you know in the russian republic of it 
it does have an ideological component, absolutely. But in many ways, it feels like a holdover of an older era of writing, especially with this constant, with the presence of like Imperial Russian era authors so heavily in its analysis and in the ways it looks at the world. See, that's why I'm just not really completely convinced that socialist realism can be defined as a genre or that there's any real yeah. distinguishing aspect of it as a genre. Maybe more as a process, but I don't know if I'm convinced it's a genre still. Yeah. I'd love to be, but I'm not sure I am. <laughs> just, yeah. You'll have to come back to it. One day we'll, that, we'll, yeah, we'll I know. We'll I, I bring it up every time. proper headpiece on socialist realism. Yeah. I get so angry every time I get myself thinking about it. <laughs> I'm the only one who lays awake at night like, is it a genre? Um, but I do. I do do that. Okay, so my other thing was is time. Mm, yes. You know, I'm a big guy for time. <laughs> no, big, I love Big me. on time. Big on time. That's me. I hear that from you all the all time. The time. <laughs> <laughs> so the quickness and intensity of flashbacks now is starting to change that we're in war. Uh, well, I guess the narrative is more. I'm not at war, thankfully. A lot of the narrative is structured around these, like, very old flashbacks, right? Like, Krimov, for instance. Like, mm -hmm. you'll have him present day, and then you'll get flashback to him, like, Revolutionary War era. And there's, you know, other instances of this. But it, it, see, this is hard, because I read two chapters ahead, and this would make my point yeah. better. But I'll <laughs> not do it. Just know, when you start reading ahead, you're going to be like, wow, that was a good point. I bet that works here, too. And it does. Which is that Grossman starts to compress the time in which the sort of shifting of time is taking place. It's no longer decades at a time. It's like, it's like days, or it starts to become like hours. And it's not necessarily about how someone's personality has changed. Now it's like, oh, yeah, they're dead. Look at this, like the... Uh, Someone with an Ava, the first one that died. Um, oh, that the if it's the truck driver who is probably the one who Clava was yeah. was uh, sleeping with. Right. Sorry, there's a lot of Avas. There are a lot of Avas. my brain at this hour. Um, but yeah, the, the the truck driver. Right. The fact that you get that flashback and it fills you in, but then it immediately dies. I just think that's an interesting thing that starts to happen, and obviously it starts to happen with soldiers kind of later. Now that you actually have. I mean, like we've had military combat, but it's mostly been retreat-ish stuff, and and now it's uh, well, we're gonna be on less of that, I think. Yeah, I, <laughs> if I had a guess, but you know, I'll tell yeah. you what, Cameron, boy, I sure hope they win. <laughs> I, sure I haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, so don't spoil no, it for me to see. He's no spoilers. <laughs> I've actually, thankfully, I've been, every time I talk about World War II, I've been having someone bludgeon me over the head. Mm -hmm. So any, any time I access memories related to knowing anything after 1943, I'm hoping now that that brain damage will extend mostly to those memories since I was accessing it at the time. And maybe we can really make this a surprise. Yeah, if you're really, lucky, maybe like it'll just extend to all memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, weirdly, you know, I still remember a lot of World War, World War II stuff. I've been losing a lot of my short-term memory, so I can't... <laughs> go about day to day so much but i think i'll get there eventually what year is it it is 1943 right <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah after we finish this episode you're gonna get down to the bomb shelter just in case you know just the, in case yeah you know, the air force flying above yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well uh matt 
I, I gotta ask you, I know there's a lot of the stuff in the script, which is now a little bit redundant because it's been answered by things you said earlier. But first of all, you know, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, and this is a sober shoulder Nietzsche, but how drunk are you? Cameron, I'm wasted on literature. No, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you that much. I can't be on that scale since I wasn't drinking. Sure. Um, how about the mighty mucus scale? I'm about a Got five. It. Yeah. I'm a little congested. Five. Not terrible. Okay. If you think I sound bad today, you should have heard me yesterday. And if you thought I sounded bad yesterday, you should have heard me the day before. So, <laughs> we're doing pretty good on that scale. Um, yeah. How about you? What scale are you working on tonight? Oh, you know, also being on the Sober Shoulder Nietzsche, mm-hmm. although not having any mucus, trying to find another another metric I can use. No muck for you? Um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm at a zero, and I will be at a zero until all my books are at least are packed. And everything. Also, all my others, all my other things too. I, I have another important things besides books. I need but nothing you know, but my books. <laughs> I was cursing myself when I was doing my move, just like the amount of books that I own. Ooh. Every time I move, since I turned eighteen, I've moved five or six times, mm-hmm. and every time I move, I bring fewer and fewer books. My first time, I brought my entire collection in high school. I amassed, and I used to do, I used to do accounting of all my books because. I apparently had too much free time. I, I had 550 something it. books and Ladies I brought all of them. Accounting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had, I brought them all to my first apartment for college and that was a horrible mistake. Yeah, so every I think time I did I moved, about I take, the same thing. <laughs> I think now I probably have like a good 30 to 40 books. So I've gone from 500 something to 40 books at a time. And so I'm hoping I won't ever have to move 500 books again. My God. Terrifying. <laughs> And I know everyone's gonna. Everyone knows what we're moving on to. But uh, next episode, which part of Stalingrad are we covering? Part seven, which is part seven, uh, not confusing at all. In that we will be finishing part <laughs> two of the book, mm-hmm. which is exciting. Yes, which is very exciting. Which like we're finally nearing the, the point where like I, I think I, it's something psychological with me, which is like when I'm more than halfway through, it feels like I read faster because I'm I'm flipping downhill mm-hmm. now. Uh, yeah <laughs> we finally got to that point <laughs> reading downhill <laughs> i'm flipping him downhill yeah <laughs> yeah i love this concept yeah you're welcome <laughs> reminder that you can always email us tipsy at gmail.com if you want us to read your comment on the podcast preferably about something that we're covering and not as my current inbox says from this russian spammer would I like to buy aluminum oxide? No, I what? wouldn't. <laughs> Send me something Wait, different. Is that, yeah, we got, an, we got they, an, an email about that. Is that is that spam? Is that a scam? Or is that someone actually trying to sell us ox food? Whenever people give me send me spam I email, did you like that link? I am not going <laughs> to click on that. No, you need to click that link for science. No. <laughs> no. What else we got? Somebody wants to join our affiliate program, which we do okay. not have. Cool. Anything oh, else? Any oh, other good ones? Another oh, one. Oh, you have another, another one. What, another. I'm not jealous. Can I find here? Serious man? Question mark. Smiley face. <laughs> We've gotten so many of those. It feels like at this point, the more I listen to them, the less. It, I mean, it was never flirty in the first place, but it feels. Did you ever read that book? Or I think it was made into a horrible movie, The Snowman by Joe Nesbo. I don't. I don't remember if this is a feature of the book or a movie. Is it but about a serious the, snowman? 
no, well, the, the the killer, the serial killer in the book, like always leaves behind a snowman with like a little note in it. <laughs> like, uh, you know, this is like the fame. I don't think this is in the book, but like the famous one from the movie trailer was, you know, you could have saved your Mr. Policeman. I gave you all the clues. This is the vibe that this line is giving me. Like it's it's where later on we're going to realize that, you know, a serious man was some kind of clue for us. That we should be tracking something down to like save, you know, like little Timmy from drowning. Who's like stuck in like a drainage pipe under um you know, we just have to find the key to unlock the, the thing to let him out before the serial killer gets away with it again. Uh-huh. Am I, is this coming? Is this just... <laughs> you getting that vibe at all? Is that just me? <laughs> I just... I don't know. I think you're taking it too seriously because you have a very good a prime candidate here. <laughs> I I am the serious But she specifies <laughs> I am real girl and looking for a serious and hot relationship. So... If okay. that matches anyone's right. profile out there, let us know. We will connect you. <laughs> You're but looking you for a real girl, you, looking for a serious Cameron, not. stop messing around. You have to be a serious man here. <laughs> <laughs> real girl needs serious man. Uh, we did get a serious question, actually, as I was going oh, through we? the inbox that I ignored. I didn't ignore. The you problem is the website spits this into the same filter I have as just like website updates. And so I get a thousand things about like your plugins have been updated and like leave me alone. <laughs> uh, this is actually from one of our patrons, Blake. Hello, Blake. Email captioned titled Stalingrad Part 3 Questions. Hey guys, I'm loving the recent pods on Stalingrad. Thank you. I read the book earlier this year and your context analysis has made a lot of connections that I didn't make myself. I've especially enjoyed the deep dive into Grossman himself. I didn't realize, for example, just how much of Victor is modeled on his own life. My questions are, who was the other candidate for the Soviet Tolstoy? Is it consensus now that Grossman won out that distinction? Oh, I don't remember who that was off the top of my head. I do have that information written down somewhere. Camera's going to splice that in later. It's going to be magic. I'm going to splice that. Yeah. I will just Um, say that the idea of a Soviet Tolstoy was not necessarily like an honor to be bestowed upon people. It was more of a... Like a philosophical idea, I think, initially, at least during the period that I studied or that I initially was kind of focusing on in, I don't know if I've gone on this this rant, but I will here because I've got a couple minutes. Go for it. In the 1920s, this writer that I studied, Sergei Tretikov, he wrote this article called The New Leo Tolstoy in this radical journal called The Left Front of the Arts that he eventually, we worked on with like Mayakovsky and a bunch of other just like basically like everyone who's like one of the boys and gals were writing for this journal and he was basically saying that we don't need uh leo tolstoy like that that you shouldn't be trying to model your process of literary production on the same things that were popular in pre-revolutionary russia essentially saying that the new material conditions were going to dictate a new kind of art that we haven't even begun to conceive of yet and he kind of got into his big idea was called factography and he was really a kind of forerunner like he was kind of in the forefront of what would become kind of the way soviet newspaper develops and in a less fun way like the way like soviet internal security develops this idea that you can be everywhere all the time like always is a really big component of how he thought news should kind of work. Um, And so that's a long way of saying that not everybody wanted a Soviet Tolstoy. This is something that comes about, I think, really with the 
writers union with the kind of advent of that but for a really long time this was not necessarily something that people wanted or at least that the radical socialists really wanted and is it a consensus now that Grossman won out that distinction probably I don't think it's a it's not an official distinction I just think in general that's something that he's often known as and I think uh, you're, you're gonna splice in a little bit later right Cameron about I remember reading that part as well about the yeah, battle of the Soviet I, Tolstoys. It was just like, it's just, it would get, you know, in the writers' union, it became so incredibly political and tense. And so it wasn't always the people that had the best uh, literary talent that were promoted from within, of course. Yes. And I will say, I, I will splice in the exact name of the person, the other kind of like the other faction, how, who it is. I will say, whoever it is is not someone you've ever heard of and not someone anyone who doesn't specifically study this has heard of at this point so there you go there's your answer it was not anyone of of any note i mean i shouldn't say that someone who in certain contexts definitely had note however broadly speaking (laughs) yeah but these are interesting questions to ask especially when you think about socialist realism is it a genre let's find out yeah I think it's really bound up with the, with the writer's union and kind of centralizing that production. It, well, obviously is, but the, even the, the yeah. idea of it w- was not something that was popular in the 20s. Or it, like it wasn't even a thing in the 20s, so the idea of socialist realism. Yeah. There were a lot of other terms that were being thrown around and used until this is kind of consolidated in the 30s. 34 to be exact. Anyways, these are things that I know that haunt me. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.